Shalom, and welcome to Inside Israel News, your source for unbiased and thorough analysis of Israeli news, politics, and current events in the Middle East. I'm your host, Isaac Kite. Inside Israel News is back. It's been an exciting week in news, so much going on. Uh, I don't know if I'll be able to fit everything into the episode today. Uh, Ukraine crisis, big problems brewing over in Ukraine uh, vis-a-vis Russia. And that definitely impacts Israel. Uh, Some stuff to say about that. In addition, yours truly will be in Dallas at the Dallas Jewish Conservatives on Thursday the 27th for an event with Ted Cruz. Uh, be interesting there. I'll be bringing you uh, maybe some audio and uh, talking with uh, some of the attendees of that event as a supplemental episode and uh, ongoing issues with uh, Jews in America, anti-Semitism and support for Israel. So uh, if you happen to be in the Dallas area, <clears throat> I believe the event is sold out now, but uh, I hope to see you there. Uh, in any case, Dallas, Texas coming up. So let's start with some positive news first. Uh, Jessica Mayer uh, could be the first woman on the moon and the first Jewish woman at that. She has applied for the new Artemis program, which looks to see uh, a lunar landing sometime in the near future. And hopefully she will be accepted into that program. Uh, She has already uh, performed the uh, all-female spacewalk mission and uh, hopefully will have an opportunity to be a part of that program. Obviously, there are a lot of factors in choosing astronauts to go to the moon, and we'll see uh, what happens there. But uh, hopefully, she'll make the program. Uh, this would The Artemis mission, uh, the first of them anyway, will be the first lunar landing mission since Apollo 17 back in uh, the 1970s. Eugene Cernan was the last human to set foot on the moon, the last astronaut. Uh, And that uh, was quite some time ago. So hopefully uh, we will see the return of humans to the moon. uh, And there's a lot of exciting stuff going on in space exploration. On to the negative news. Malik Faisal Akram, the uh, terrorist who attacked the synagogue. We've had some new details come out about that. And I mean, I'm almost speechless. I almost don't know what to say. Right? This guy was known anti-Semite. He was known to be violent. People thought he was crazy. Uh, All kinds of stuff all over social media about hating Jews and wanting to kill the Jews and all this kind of thing. And he was allowed to travel to the United States and make his way into a synagogue to attack. Apparently he uh, uh, pretended to be, under the pretense of being a homeless man who had entered the synagogue before taking hostages. Uh, just again, I mean, it, it reminds me of the Sarnayev brothers, right? They went to Chechnya. They were training with terrorists. The Russian government warned the FBI and the United States that uh, they were these guys were training with terrorists, and the Obama administration did nothing about it. And then we had the attacks on the the marathon, the Boston Marathon. I mean, it, this is yet another example. How do these people get through? I know we're, we're supposed to be woke and politically correct and we're supposed to, uh, you know, peace, love and whatever. Not all Muslims are terrorists. Okay, we get all that. Okay, but when a guy is a Fruit Loop 
and he's going around social media posting about how he hates the Jews and wants to kill the Jews. And uh, people are concerned that he's violent and threatening and, and could pose a problem. This is not someone who should be allowed to fly into the United States as a foreign national. It'd be different if at least he was a U.S. citizen, right? He has a right to come here and you could say, well, you know, maybe they didn't know. This guy came to the U.S. as a visitor and attacked Jews here in this country. I mean, it's, it's asinine and it's infuriating. And, and this is the problem we have all the time. We, we're taking refugees from Afghanistan, from uh, all over the world without vetting them. We don't know who's coming into the country. Could be Hamas agents, could be Hezbollah, uh, could be Al-Qaeda. We, we bring in these people all the time. Our, our southern border is open and porous. Anyone could walk over. Uh, and, you know, the, the Venezuelans for a while were training Iranian agents to blend in as Mexicans, right? If they learn Spanish and uh, kind of merge in with a group of people, it can be very difficult. You know, the Spanish uh, live in a country that was settled by Arabs, right? So there is a lot of similarity ethnically between Spaniards and Arabs. And so when the Spaniards came over here to the Americas and mixed in with native populations to create the, the mestizo and uh, what we would traditionally think of as Mexican, Central American, South American peoples, you know, they brought some uh, of the Arab DNA with them. And therefore, it can be very difficult to spot uh, an Arab or even a Persian mixed in with a group of Central or South American refugees, purported refugees uh, coming across the southern border. So they're, they're just, they're coming right in and they're making themselves at home. And they're, uh, you know, we, we have this guy who flew into the U.S. Obviously, he did not come over the southern border, but that's just one example of how uh, weak we are, how vulnerable we are. Uh, and he comes and attacks a synagogue. It, I'm sure if you're in my audience, you share my frustration. But uh, how, how do we know we're safe? Right. I mean, we, we have Fruit Loops here in our own country, granted. Uh, and every now and then one of them goes off and attacks the synagogue. <clears throat> we had a, a number of synagogue attacks. But a lot of times it's uh, terrorism, Islamic terrorism. And it took the FBI a while to figure out uh, to call it that. Even Joe Biden was ahead of the FBI in calling this Islamic terrorism. So we found out uh, as the SWAT team was entering the synagogue, the Rav, the rabbi, uh, we call Rav in Hebrew, the rabbi uh, threw a chair at the terrorist and distracted him, and the hostages were able to escape on their own. Uh, apparently, uh, Malik died of uh, multiple gunshot wounds, so uh, he had a bit of a shootout with the SWAT team. So that, that took care of the problem right there. Some justice was done. Uh, so... Uh, that's, that's the end of that. But uh, the more details that come out about that, uh, the more you, you just end up scratching your head. How did we not know? How did we not catch this guy? Uh, and, uh, Baruch Hashem for the Rav. I mean, what a great act, uh, in that moment. We talk about, you know, courage in life, right? And in Judaism, we know that we're, uh, representatives of God. And, uh, in, that means, you know, his ambassadors, his priests, and also his soldiers. There's a time when we have to be brave. There's a time when we have to stand up uh, and not uh, just roll over and surrender and play dead. And in this case, uh, the rabbi threw a chair at this terrorist and did his duty, protected the lives of the hostages who escaped on their own, and the FBI neutralized the terrorists. So, awesome thing. Um, you know, but we need better security, for sure. Uh, the United Arab Emirates has shot down several missiles, ballistic missiles, fired by Houthi rebels from Yemen. So, 
Iran gives weapons to these proxy groups, right? And then the proxies fire them off at our allies, like the United Arab Emirates. And uh, obviously, thankfully, they were shot down, didn't do any damage. But, you know, the, the Iranians get to uh, have degrees of separation. And you pretend like it wasn't their responsibility. Everyone knows where those weapons came from. But it's a yet another example of the ear flicking, right? You know, they don't, uh, they don't come at you themselves. They send someone else. So it's like, you know, you have a, uh, a guy that, that doesn't like you in high school. And so he sends his, you know, three-year-old brother over to uh, poke you in the leg and keeps poking you in the leg and poking you in the leg. And, you know, you can kind of push the, the, you know, little brother around, but then you look really bad if you do that because he's just a little guy. Uh, but, you know, you, you never have the... Uh, justification, let's say, for going over to the guy that's that's instigating all of it and punching him in the nose. So it was really awesome when uh, Donald Trump had Soleimani killed. Uh, Soleimani. Soleimani was the uh, terror ringleader for Iran. You know, leading all of these groups, coordinating their actions, uh, fitting you know, outfitting them with weapons, supplying them, training them, uh, and his death really hit the Iranians hard and showed them that. They weren't going to get away with this proxy nonsense. Okay, so Hamas did it. Okay, so the Houthis did it. Yeah, but we know who's behind all of it. And when they got that punch in the nose, uh, they realized they had to, to step down, stand down. Of course, Donald Trump isn't president anymore. And now that the U.S. is led by a weak administration, the Iranians are having a field day. All right, on to Israeli domestic news. Uh, the... Um, the cabinet has started an investigation of the submarine affair. Uh, Israel is buying three new submarines from Germany. And this has uh, been a, just a massive corruption scandal since the, the deal began. Uh, the deal was conducted improperly. There were people close to Bibi Netanyahu who were involved, who were uh, receiving uh, kickbacks. And, and there's several people who have gone to jail over this already, although Bibi himself has not been named. Uh, the corruption scandals or the, um, the charges against him are for other issues. Okay, but this uh, summary issue, the Knesset was going to vote to uh, investigate, but they don't have the votes to pass uh, and create a, a formal investigation into the whole affair. So the cabinet is going to be launching an investigation themselves. But uh, this, this shows that the Israeli government, I mean, government is government wherever you go, right? People are people. And the Israeli government has some corrupt officials in it and some people who do dirty, dirty deals. Uh, this submarine deal is a good deal for Israel. It's the way in which it was conducted that has been the problem. So these deals are for a new class of submarines. Israel has... Um, uh, has six submarines. Well, they have five submarines now. They, they have three of the Dolphin class. They're, they're an older boat. These are diesel boats. So a couple of things here. <laughs> As a submariner myself, I'm familiar with the nomenclature. Uh, I have to take a step back to remember that other people are not. Submarines are referred to their crews ever so lovingly as boats. If you refer to a uh, warship, a, a cruiser, a destroyer, an aircraft carrier as a boat, the surface fleet sailors will look at you funny <laughs> <laughs> they were like, that is not a boat. That is a ship. You know, men and women sailing on ships, not boys and girls on boats. Anyway, uh, submariners call our, our vessels boats. They're, they're submersible vessels. And, uh, you know, some of them are, you know, 
800 feet long, but they're still boats to us. <laughs> and so we have, um, uh, we have this, this thing. So anyway, they're boats. Uh, so Israel has three older dolphin class boats and back in the aughts, uh, during the early days of Angela Merkel's uh, time as chancellor, Israel commissioned to build uh, three uh, U-32 type boats uh, from Germany. And these are boats that are diesel, they're diesel electric, uh, which means they're powered by an electric motor. A diesel engine runs while they're on the surface to provide power and charge batteries. And then when they're submerged, they run off their batteries. Uh, They also have air independent power Uh, a hydrogen cell technology that generates electricity and allows the submarine to sustain a very low-level operational capability for a longer period of time underwater. That's these these three new boats of the Dolphin II class. The last of these, the Drakon, or Dragon, as uh, in in Hebrew, uh, will be completed this uh, coming year. It's in trials now in Germany. And to be delivered to Israel. Now, these submarines, these three, have a surface-to-surface cruise missile launch capability. That is, they have uh, eight tubes, torpedo tubes, on the, the front of the ship. And two of them are, or most torpedo tubes are 21-inch. Two of them are 26-inch. Uh, we had these on the Seawolf-class uh, submarines that were an attack sub in the U.S., uh, designed very end of the Cold War, kind of for a mission that no longer existed. By the time we had these boats in 1999-2000, we didn't need them. The the Soviet Union was gone, and their next-generation attack sub never really materialized. The the Akulas are the last of the major long-range deep-sea submarine uh, types. And as the Russian Federation has tried to maintain its military since then, they've not had the, the finances or the resources to build Soviet-era type submarines. They've had to downsize quite a bit and uh, rely on keeping Russian, you know, Soviet-era equipment running. And their newer boats are just not uh, of the same caliber, let's just say, uh, to compete with ours. Anyway, so uh, these 26-inch tubes, they can fire cruise missiles horizontally, you know, forward, and then the, there's a, a little rocket that uh, takes these cruise missiles to the surface, at which point they operate like a normal cruise missile. So this is called a surface-to-surface cruise missile. The recent Israeli strike on the Syrian port that destroyed Russian munitions there uh, may have been launched by submarine. Uh, the Israel sort of implied that the Israeli Air Force had done it, but it's entirely possible that it was done by cruise missile. I've talked a lot about how Israel works to keep advanced weapons uh, from Iran out of the hands of Hezbollah and also advanced Russian military systems out of the hands of the the Syrian government. This led to Russia expressing grave concerns about their relationship with Israel and Israel's activities in Syria, which I'll talk about in a minute. In any case, the new class is called the Dakar class. It is named after an Israeli submarine that was lost uh, back in the 60s, a much older boat, obviously, and so it's in memoriam to them. There will be three vessels in this class that are being ordered now as part of this deal. It's entirely possible that these submarines may have vertical launch capability, or VLS, a vertical launch system. They may have six cruise missile tubes in the rear of the ship, uh, of the boat, uh, that could launch cruise missiles, or possibly also ballistic missiles, depending on the size of these uh, missile ports. Uh, a small ballistic missile would then have the range, let's say, to 
travel from the Mediterranean to, say, Tehran in Iran. Uh, so this, this offers Israel a second strike nuclear capability and also a stealthier nuclear capability. Uh, Israel could sail uh, these submarines on the surface through the Suez Canal. Obviously, the Iranians would then know uh, that the submarine is coming. Uh, or uh, it, if they wanted to move them into the Red Sea or the uh, Arabian Sea, or they can make the long schlep around uh, Africa and come into the Indian Ocean that way and end up in the Ar- Arabian Sea. But uh, Israel could possession submarines off Iran's coast if need be. Uh, but even operating in the Mediterranean, they are stealthy and they cannot be targeted by Iran from where they are, which means that uh, they could uh, provide an effective deterrent, just like U.S. submarines do. In any case, interesting stuff. Three new boats coming, uh, and these new boats could have a vertical launch capability, which would enhance Israel's naval capabilities quite a bit. Uh, which brings to the larger point, the Israeli Navy has more than doubled in size in the last few years with the help of the United States and Germany. Uh, U.S. help mostly in the form of financial aid. We, we provide a chunk of Israel's defense budget. Uh, U.S. military aid accounts for uh, less than a fifth of Israel's military budget and about 6% of the Israeli defense budget, or the budget overall, excuse me. About a fifth of the defense budget and about uh, 6% of the Israeli budget as a whole. And that decreases uh, as Israel's growing their own uh, capabilities and deal with their own financial issues. In any case, uh, Germany has been building most of these ships and uh, Israel has increased its submarine capabilities and is building more corvettes, which are light, fast, uh, smaller than destroyers, uh, capable of sea action and uh, anti-air capabilities, anti-ship capabilities, this kind of thing, right? Uh, So the Israeli Navy is expanding. The expansion of the Israeli military, when you look at it, when Israel was founded, of course, it was founded with as a land power. Uh, Obviously, the threat of attack from Jordan, from Syria, from Egypt, from Lebanon. uh, Israel has had the the IDF had to focus on its ground forces mostly. The Israeli Air Force, such as it was in the in the early days, (laughs) flying uh, you can't make this stuff up. Uh, BF-109, Czech-made German fighters, <laughs> Messerschmitt fighters, uh, that the, the Czech government was eager to unload. They, they bought these and, and Israeli uh, pilots flew them down to Israel and they were able to uh, attack the Egyptians and that helped convince the Egyptian army to turn around and not to approach Tel Aviv. So the Israeli Air Force did play a critical role in the, in the early efforts to establish Israeli independence. Uh, And obviously in the Six-Day War and again in the Yom Kippur War, the Israeli Air Force was central. So Israel started off very much as a land power, grew as a a land power, and became an air power. Now, as Israel is developing its offshore natural gas capabilities, you know, they have a lot of natural gas in the Mediterranean just offshore, which is very valuable to Israel in providing energy within Israel, but also exporting Uh, natural gas to Europe and other places, right? That is huge. And the ability to defend that is important. So the Israeli Navy has been growing. Naval power is a real sign of a country's ability to project force. Bibi Netanyahu talked of uh, Israel becoming a world power. 
And some people laugh at that. Israel is becoming a world power. <laughs> so uh, the joke's on them, I guess. Uh, with the growing naval capabilities, Israel has an ability to project force. Ships can sail far from Israel and launch weapons that can hit targets far afield. Uh, it's possible that Israel attacked uh, targets in Sudan using naval forces. The Sudanese claim that no such attacks ever took place, but uh, there are claims that, that it happened. In any case, uh, the growth of the Israeli Navy shows you that Israel has really become a major power, and it is gaining all of the capabilities necessary to deter Iran. So then you think about you know, with the Israeli Air Force, Israeli Ground Forces, the Israeli Navy, as they grow in prominence, how that will relate to, say, helping Bahrain and the UAE, Israel's new allies, or even unfriendly but, you know, sort of nominally, quietly allied countries, maybe, like Saudi Arabia, uh, in defending themselves from Iran, that's huge. You add to that uh, the Saudi Air Force, the Egyptian Air Force and other uh, allied potentially forces in the area, and uh, you have a power, uh, a powerful deterrent to Iran, a powerful force that could stand up to Iran. It's slowly kind of coming together. But central to that is Israel, and Israel as a power. So the Israeli Navy is growing, and that is a very important thing, uh, sign for the future. Obviously, as Israel's economy grows, and as Israel grows as a an economic presence it is the fastest growing economy in the developed world. Uh, their importance in the world will increase. And this is a sign of that. All right. Bibi Netanyahu's legal problems. There's <laughs> been so much stuff going on this last week. Um, I was hoping to get an episode out earlier. I'm kind of glad I waited because there's been a lot of headlines and people throwing out there, you know, oh, we offered Bibi this deal and he rejected it. Oh, no, this deal and this kind of thing. Uh, I did discuss it a little bit in last week's episode. So Bibi Netanyahu has been engaged in plea bargain negotiations with the attorney general. And his goal is if he pleads guilty to avoid saying there was serious wrongdoing and to avoid serious consequences. So there'd be no jail time and it would not prevent him from being involved in politics. That's what he's looking for, uh, to avoid trial. Apparently, his attorneys do not believe that the charges will collapse or that he'll be acquitted uh, because they would not otherwise be negotiating for a plea deal, right? So again, going back to last year when I talked about the charges, they, they are somewhat circumstantial and uh, a lot of the witnesses are obviously biased against Bibi, but apparently his attorneys feel that uh, the allegations are sticking. And so this goes beyond Bibi's failure in that he uh, allowed these charges to, he allowed the perception that he could be corrupt. Right. So first, uh, there, you know, the, there was the appearance of corruption is the appearance of some guilt, some degree of guilt that uh, these deals actually happened, that there were some quid pro quos or at the least that there is strong enough evidence of it in court. Right. So uh, this is a big problem for Bibi Netanyahu. Uh, this is not uh, looking good for him. Meanwhile, Millions of shekels have been raised by his supporters to defend him, and he remains the popular leader of the Likud party. So there's that. Uh, he, so one of, one of the claims out there was that the attorney general 
that he offered Bibi a plea deal that would involve Bibi being out of politics for two years and that he reneged because he claimed that this would allow Bibi to uh, undermine democracy. We've heard that a lot of this, you know, undermining democracy. Like somehow the people of Israel electing Bibi to be in office would somehow undermine democracy. I, I don't, I'm going to have to work with me here. <laughs> uh, we're electing him. And that's undermining democracy somehow. Uh, the opposition government right now, like the, the, he's in opposition. So the, the, his opponents now run the country. I don't know what, what undermines democracy about that. It sounds a lot like politics to me. Uh, the usual, usual. Uh, but in any case. So now what's going on is uh, negotiations have broken down. The uh, current attorney general's term ends in a few weeks. And so... They're saying that the negotiations will have to resume after the new attorney general is appointed. And uh, what's really kind of holding things up is BB is willing to plead guilty as long as he doesn't get any real prison sentence or any consequences from that. Uh, so apparently, and so, all right, taking a step back just for a second here. I've talked about how BB's legal team must be concerned that there's enough uh, evidence that he might be convicted. Okay, well then, on the other side, and I mentioned this in last week's episode, from a prosecutor's point of view, the prosecutor, if they're convinced that they have a solid conviction, they're not going to pursue a plea deal, right? I mean, they might pursue a plea deal under certain circumstances if it just saves time, right? Or we're talking about a normal prosecution, right? You know, your, your case in your local town with your district attorney and that kind of thing where they're dealing with somebody, they... They may say, hey, look, I've got a solid case. You're going away if I take this to trial. But I'll tell you what, I'll, you know, we'll do this deal if you'll just plead guilty now and save us all the trouble. And so that, that happens. But in this case, this is a high-profile case uh, you know, being led by the state attorney, you know, the, the attorney general, the, the chief prosecutor in the country, against the former prime minister and current leader of the opposition, right? An important figure. So if they felt they had a solid case, they would not be discussing the plea bargain. So there's a little bit of middle ground here. We're in that gray area. Maybe they could get a conviction on BB. Maybe they couldn't. Maybe they could get a conviction, but the sentence would be light. Maybe they don't get a conviction. It's kind of in that, that zone there. So from the prosecutor's point of view, they're trying to get some admission of guilt, and they're still trying to get BB out of politics. That's the point I'm trying to drive at here. The whole point of these cases of charging BB, whether or not he did it, whether or, again, they're, they, he first of all allowed the perception to exist that he was corrupt, right? Uh, and second, given that perception, there was evidence found, right? Okay, so now there's this plea bargain negotiation and what the prosecutors are looking for is a declaration of moral turpitude or a finding of moral turpitude either agreed to in the plea deal or found by the judges, which would prevent BB from running for office for seven years, right? That's what the prosecutors are looking for. That's what BB's opponents are looking for. That's what, what the political establishment is looking for. They want BB gone, right? BB obviously does not want that. He and his attorneys are trying to avoid any claim of moral turpitude. So what they're trying to do is plead guilty and then turn around and 
politically and just say, oh, you know, these were all politically charged trials or whatever. And I just made it go away. I just pled guilty to make it all go away. Right. Uh, and meanwhile, the attorney general, the prosecutor are trying to get him really get him. You know, I don't know how this is going to play out. Honestly, uh, the next attorney general is going to have to negotiate. And who knows, maybe they'll end up going to trial. Um, this is just an interesting place for this to be. Uh, if BB were as innocent as he purported to be, if he was as innocent as he claimed, it would have been difficult to put these cases together in the first place. It would have been difficult to start trial on these cases. And there would be no need to be discussing a plea deal, right? There would be, there would be talks of dropping the charges, right? If, if things were as BB said they were, right? As, this is fair analysis here at Inside Israel News. I've, I've said before I was a BB supporter in the past, and right now I, I prefer the change block government go full term. So I, my opinions being out there, I think BB should quit. I think he should be done. That being said, I know there are a lot of BB fans out there still, and being fair, again, why we're here doesn't quite, the place we're in right now doesn't quite fit with BB's version of events, okay? So I just want to make that point without putting too fine a point on it. <laughs> if, if BB's version of the story were the case, we wouldn't be talking about plea bargains. The cases would all be crumbling in court and they, they'd be talking about trying to get the prosecutor, the attorney general, to drop the charges. If the attorney general's version of the story, if the if political establishment's version, the Avigdor Lieberman and his, you know, BB is a threat to the future of Israel and all, all of these political figures who've been saying that, you know, BB Netanyahu is the problem and that if he's in office, he's totally corrupt. If their version of the story were correct and BB totally made bad deals, total quid pro quos and, and he was corrupt and he was getting, you know, favorable coverage from Bezik in exchange for, for, uh, you know, working with them and, and helping the, the Bezik owners and this kind of thing. If, if he were that corrupt, the state prosecutor, the attorney general in this case, would not be pursuing a plea, be plea bargain of any kind because they'd have a rock solid case and they'd want to go to trial and really, really nail BB to the wall. They'd be like, you know, we, we've got him, right? So here we are, right? The prosecutors and the political establishment, the cases are kind of weak, Maybe there were quid pro quos. Maybe they rose to the level of being illegal. Maybe. On the other side, BB isn't, sol you know, they haven't really solidly made the case that BB's totally corrupt and deserves to be driven from politics. So we're in this gray area. And, you know, if you're familiar with the courts, it's a mess, right? So, I mean, this could go all kinds of different ways. They could, if the, if the two parties come to some kind of a plea bargain agreement, they could agree to almost anything. Uh, the judges could make changes to that even afterwards. Like they could come up with a total plea bargain or whatever, and the judges could say, no, we're not going to accept this, or we'll only accept this if this is the case, and then the whole thing could fall apart. Or it could go to trial. The charges could be dismissed. All these kinds of things. I mean, who knows, right? But, it, you know, the, the court process, and this is where it's at. Again, ni neither side's stories are quite adding up at this point, right? I mean, we're, we're not getting... We're not getting either version of this story playing out the way that, that both sides have, have put them. Just, just there, you know, and uh, who knows, right? Who knows what goes from here? Speaking of the Israeli court, sad news, 
Miriam Naor, who is the former Chief Justice of the Israeli Supreme Court, has passed. She was 74. She served on the court from 2003 to 2017 and as the Chief Justice of the Israeli Supreme Court from 2017, uh, 2015 to 2017 when she retired. Uh, she was heading the commission that was looking into the Meron disaster, uh, the collapsing. Uh, it was a panic. I, I talked about this many episodes back. Uh, back in the spring, there was a, an event the ultra-Orthodox were holding. There was some kind of a panic. Uh, the bleachers collapsed. People were killed and injured, and it was, uh, it was a real problem. And uh, she was looking into that. So obviously, they're going to need a new uh, head of that commission. But uh, Miriam Naor was a legend in Israeli law. She was involved in a lot of key and critical Supreme Court decisions in Israel during that time. And uh, so, uh, as, as we say in uh, uh, my form of Judaism anyway, Menuhato Beganeden, may her rest be in the Garden of Bliss. So, uh, we, we'll miss Miriam Naor, one of Israel's great jurists. All right. Um, briefly, I'm going to go into Russia and Ukraine. The part of it that really connects to Israel, of course, is Russia's presence in Syria. So I'm going to talk about that here for just a second. Uh, we know that uh, Israel destroyed a Russian weapon system that was being sold to the Syrian government uh, at a Syrian port recently. Uh, Russia has expressed grave concerns about that. They have a real problem with it. And uh, they are uh, kind of stepping up their game against, uh, say against Israel, but they're, they're, they're expressing concerns about it and trying to make it so that they can sell weapons to the Syrians and know that those weapons will be used by the Syrians or safely delivered or what have you. Uh, so Russia is holding joint air patrols with Syria from now on. Uh, and uh, they're, so, you know, when Syrian fighters go up to patrol the airspace in Syria, right, uh, Russian fighter jets may be joining them. So if the Israeli Air Force should enter Syrian airspace to destroy targets there, they may end up being engaged by Russian aircraft. Uh, and if they are in Syrian space, Russian planes will hesitate not one nanosecond to open fire on Israeli aircraft. Uh, Russian aircraft are going to be a little bit more high-tech, a little bit more capable. Nevertheless... U.S. technology is far in advance. So, uh, our, you know, the, the F-35I, the Adir fighter, is stealthy and uh, will probably be able to get by Russian planes without being uh, detected, you know. But still, this is, this is Russia stepping up their game in Syria. Russia really wants to be a regional power and project force. And again, they have a naval base in Aleppo. So, I mean, this is na naval powers and, and projecting force, as I spoke of uh, before. Right. So all of this stuff happening with Ukraine, the, the real dig for Israel is that Syria is an ally of Russia and Russia and Israel are not necessarily on the best terms right now. Israel has walked a tightrope with Russia in the past. So um, that's that's going to be interesting there. Uh, speaking of Europe, real quick before we go to the break. Uh, Mickey Levy, the Knesset speaker, is going to address the Bundestag on Holocaust Memorial Day. Uh, the Bundestag is the lower house of the German legislature. It's their parliament, right, that elects the chancellor and, and the government. And uh, they're going to be talking, uh, Mickey Levy is going to talk to the German uh, parliament about 
the Holocaust. So that's that's a great symbol there of an Israeli political figure addressing the German parliament uh, about the Holocaust. And it's just going to be an incredible moment. Uh, the new traffic light coalition, of course, they're being center left, uh, will be eager to receive that message. And um, I'll be talking a little bit more about German politics as I talk about Russia uh, and the regional issues there. So that's going to be an incredible moment uh, in history. And it'll be a video of that available at some point. I will put up on the Facebook page so you can find it there. Uh, there was an attack recently on Palestinians and pro-Palestinian activists by uh, Jewish extremists. And uh, this attack has been universally condemned by Jews, Jewish groups. Obviously, there are some on the extreme who support these kinds of things, but uh, we, we oppose this. I have condemned it. Uh, this is not a, an appropriate uh, way to engage in dealing with issues uh, with the Palestinians. Uh, these occasional incidents happen, and there's a little bit of property damage, and a couple of people are hurt, right? But then that gets played up by the anti-Semites as, you know, we're, we're attacking them. This happens once in a great while, relatively minor, and the Israeli government goes after these, those who, perpetuate these, who perpetrate these attacks, right? They're arrested. Whereas, you know, the Palestinians will send terrorists into the homes of Israeli families to slit the throats of men, women, and children in the night. And then those people, you know, their family gets money, gets a pension for, for their act of terror, and they get celebrated as a martyr, right? There, there is no moral comparison here, okay? But at the same time, it's not good that there's violence by Jewish extremists uh, against the Palestinians. Uh, Minister of Public Security Omar Barlev, who is uh, the Labor Party, has called this organized terrorism. Right. So we we have from the Israeli left uh, a condemnation in very terse and strong language. Right. He's not mincing words here. He's calling it terrorism when Jewish extremists attack uh, uh, Jewish and Arab uh, activists who are on the pro-Palestinian side. Not okay. To, to attack people. Uh, and uh, Omar Barlev is, you know, involved in the government. Labor Party is a member of the government and the governing coalition. Uh, he's making a powerful statement right there. So uh, there's, again, speaking of moral comparison, right, when, when Palestinians engage in acts of terror, they're celebrated by Palestinian leaders uh, and uh, regaled as heroes, Right. Meanwhile, in Israel, they're called terrorists. When, when Jews do this, we call it terrorism. Uh, Shinbet, which is Israel's internal security service, uh, they're investigating the uh, Negev violence, the recent violence in the Negev, the riots by Bedouins <clears throat> against uh, law enforcement and uh, Israeli government offices and such. Uh, the Bedouins are concerned about reforestation efforts, so I'm going to come back to that in, in just a second. But 16 Bedouins have been indicted now uh, for charges. They're being charged under the, uh, by, by law enforcement because of these riots. So, you know, the Bedouins uh, themselves, a young Bedouin man himself, told me that uh, Israel is the only place for the Bedouins. Uh, you know, there's a, it's the best because when incidents like this happen in, say, Jordan and Egypt, uh, those governments just go out and kill people, 
They, they find the nearest Bedouins and they kill them. And they don't care who actually perpetrated what. You know, meanwhile, the Israelis, when these things happen, they go looking for individual people who committed acts of violence and arrest them for the violent acts that they committed. So we have that. Now, the larger... Um, the larger reforestation question I talked about a little bit last episode is uh, the the whole region used to be a forest, used to be very forested, um, not as much in the Negev region as in other places, but uh, the, the mountain range, certainly where Jerusalem is located, the, the Shomon, Yehuda, uh, that area was certainly forested. And you can read about that in the biblical books from that period. Uh, this was a, a very heavily forested area. But when uh, the when the Ottoman Turks lost a battle with the Spanish, their navy was sunk, and they deforested the whole region in order to build a new navy in a hurry. So uh, it's been a dry, arid desert since then. And now that Jews have returned, we're trying to reforest it. However, the Bedouins are concerned because this means that uh, they uh, are largely nomadic people. When there are trees, like they don't go in the forests, right? They, they live out in the open range. So when there are forests and trees growing and whatever, it basically displaces them. And they're living in a number of illegal uh, communities. Uh, you might say settlements, <laughs> international communities. You know, any, any Jewish community is a settlement if it's over a certain line. Well, anyway, these, these Bedouin uh, communities or settlements uh, out in the Negev are largely illegal uh, they move around a lot, they're nomadic, uh, and they don't necessarily live a settled lifestyle. Israel has been trying to urbanize them a little bit, get them to form into smaller communities and that kind of thing, um, so that they will be settled, more settled, uh, but this hasn't necessarily worked, and uh, the Bedouins rioted. Well, this is an issue because Mansour Abbas, who leads the Ra'am party, holds four votes in the Knesset. And he is involved in the government, and he said that he won't support the government if they don't find some solution to this reforestation issue. So political talks are still ongoing, uh, no news, no settlement yet, uh, just that uh, those who committed acts of violence have been indicted, arrested and, and indicted for their violent acts. Shin Beit is investigating a couple of these acts as terrorist acts because they were just a little too targeted and not, not just random violence in, in political protest. Um, rioting is not okay. All right. So uh, there's that. So that's basically the news. Uh, little little side here about the Omicron variant and the Wuhan virus. We're getting a lot of talk in Israel about it peaking that uh, they think this is the maximum number of cases and hospitalizations they're going to see. Uh, and uh, there is talk of kind of getting back to normal, that the, 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 the crisis has run its course. And we're starting to get that too from uh, the CEO of Pfizer and several board members uh, publicly stating that uh, things can return to normal now. We can end the mask mandates and the vaccine mandates and natural immunity and all of this. And all, all, all together, the crisis is over and it's okay. We can go back to life as normal. Little bit by little bit. Uh, the new normal, if you want to call it that. In any case, um, there, there are starting to be calls to, to put a stop to all this, uh, all these lockdowns and what have you. 
been argued by a lot of people for a long time that these have done nothing about the virus while at the same time exacerbating mental health problems. We've had the highest suicide rates uh, and the highest drug overdose rates in history. Uh, people engaging in reckless, suicidally reckless behavior and, in, and committing suicide. Healthy people, teenagers, right, are committing suicide because they're socially isolated and they're in these lockdown situations. So this is, um, this is certainly a problem. Uh, can't wait to see all of this stuff go away and people get back to normal. But it is interesting to see that. Uh, one wonders, and I just have to make a political point, domestic American politics, uh, during the BLM riots in the summer, uh, the media maintained this narrative that uh, the, there was no violence. These were mostly peaceful protests. And the claims that they were violent were uh, white supremacist claims. And, and you know, people on the, on the Trump side, the, the pro-Trump Republican side, were just making it up, right? But people aren't that stupid. And people began to figure out that there really were riots. There was a lot of violence. People were being killed. You know, two dozen people died including an eight-year-old girl in Georgia, right? Sadly, it's a terrible thing. Most of these two dozen people are African-American. And uh, this started to, to impact the polls. They started to see, you know, Joe Biden was hurting in the polls because of it. Well, all of a sudden, there was a shift in the narrative. All of a sudden, the media admitted that there were riots. These mostly peaceful protests suddenly became riots. And now it was all Donald Trump's fault. Right. So this immediate shift, they, they, they're happy to rub egg on their face and, um, you know, they, they, they will condescend themselves within a second without, you know, without flinching, without batting an eye. They just, bam, just pivot. Oh, no, they're riots and they're Donald Trump's fault. And, and you see this kind of thing happen in the media. Well, it seems now that uh, the election bill has failed. The rig every election bill has failed. And the Build Back Bolshevik, or uh, quote-unquote Build Back Better bill, uh, has failed uh, in the Senate thanks to a couple of Democrats who wisely want to have some at least possibility that they may be reelected in the future. They are opposing this extreme agenda uh, because those things are happening. The 2022 elections look terrible for the Democrat Party. And so now we're starting to see some hints that the narrative may be changing. Now they're realizing that these lockdowns and uh, all of this virus stuff is hurting them. You know, there's been a couple reporters uh, recently. A reporter asked uh, Vice President Kamala Harris, uh, well, how, why haven't you guys beaten the virus? You said you were going to beat the virus, right? Uh, and she just laughed, you know, cackled. Yeah. What, what else are you going to say? I mean, it's not like they have answers for these things. <laughs> um, you know, so we're starting to see a shift in the narrative here in the U.S. that's moving away from it. In Israel and Britain and a number of other places, they are uh, talking about a peak. They're saying that the crisis is essentially over and very soon everything will be kind of going back to, uh, back to normal. One can only hope. So that's the final aside. Okay, Ukraine. Uh, tensions are rising over Ukraine. Ukraine is a former Soviet republic on the border of Russia. Uh, a lot of history in the region. Uh, I don't have the time to go completely in depth on uh, all of the politics. So I, I kind of want to give you a brief overview so that you have an idea what's going on. If you want to know more, obviously, you can go do uh, your own reading and research But in terms of the background. But uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed, 
Ukraine declared independence and uh, disarmed its nuclear weapons. The uh, Chernobyl accident took place within the borders of what is now the country of Ukraine. So uh, they've been working to clean up the nuclear disaster. And uh, that's been a, uh, a kind of a, an, a theme for Ukraine is getting away from the Cold War, right? Getting away from the Soviet Union and that kind of thing. And so Ukraine has been caught between, I want to say, three poles, if you want to call it. It's sort of a tripolar country. There are a lot of ethnic Russians living in Ukraine. Something about Joseph Stalin starving six or seven million Ukrainians to death in the Holodormer. Uh, the Holodormer, very much like the Holocaust, was one of the terrible events perpetrated by a socialist government in the early 20th century. Uh, Joseph Stalin... Uh, was able to steal all the food from Ukraine. So the rest of Russia was kind of living it up. And uh, Stalin was selling this grain internationally in order to buy uh, steel plants and uh, try to build up his industries. But the way that he did this was basically stealing all the food from Ukrainians and all of their farming implements, which went to other parts of Russia. And uh, the people there starved to death. Uh, there's a great movie out there, Mr. Jones, uh, which talks about uh, the journalist who uncovered this and uh, reported it to the world. Very courageous. We do get some talk about the, the heroes who courageously smuggled out information about the Holocaust as it was happening. And most people didn't believe it. And really, that, that picture of Ike Eisenhower next to the piles of bodies was what made the Holocaust real for a lot of people. But no one believed that it could happen. Right. And the same thing in, in Ukraine. So having killed off so many ethnic Ukrainians, obviously, ethnic Russians moved in. And so much of the eastern part of Ukraine, the eastern half of Ukraine, is mostly Russian speaking, mostly Russian. Right. And then there's the western half, which is more or less Ukrainian. Then there's the Crimea, which was never part of Ukraine. Uh, it's kind of its own little separate region. It's mostly ethnically Turk, Turkic peoples live there. Uh, was a, a major outpost of the Byzantine Empire for a long time. And uh, it's always kind of been its own thing. Nikita Khrushchev made it part of the Soviet Republic of Ukraine because he himself was Ukrainian. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a big thing for him that Ukraine would, would take this on. So when Ukraine gained its independence from the Soviet Union, it gained the borders it had as the Soviet Republic of Ukraine. And that included Crimea. Well... Uh, Russia is an insecure country, right? You look at Russia and you look at its land borders and you understand its history. Russians feel very insecure. They are open to invasion from everywhere, literally, right? I mean, the, the, their Western borders come up against Europe, uh, among the greatest military powers in the world, including Germany, which twice in a century... Uh, has gone to war with Russia, right? On the other side, there's Japan, China, other major world powers over in the East that threaten Russia's territorial integrity over there. And uh, Russia's been invaded by steppe peoples uh, from uh, what is now Kazakhstan and, and the steppes out in central Russia many times. So Russians feel very insecure in ways that Americans really can't understand. We are a naval power. So we have a Navy to protect us. We're almost an island, right? And we, American culture kind of is an offshoot of British culture, Britain being an island. We have this sort of island mentality. 
Canada to the north of us, there are good buddies, right? Mexico to the south, may have some difficulties, but generally Mexico understands that it's in their best interest to help protect the U.S. If Mexico doesn't want to see terrorism and uh, invasion and all these problems, they kind of need to coordinate and work with the U.S. So we're very secure. If, a, if China, if Russia, if any other country wanted to attack America, they have to come across the ocean to do it. And we will, of course, resist them. I mean, we have a powerful navy, air forces, uh, nuclear weapons. Right, we have that. Russians have always felt insecure about invasion. And in the Second World War, Stalin... I, there, there's so many, there's so many things to say here. I'm just going to have to be quick. Stalin was an idiot. <laughs> he did everything Hitler did. He invaded seven countries. Uh, he tried to invade Finland. He invaded the Baltic states. Uh, he invaded Tanotuva, a little country on the border of uh, China. Uh, he attacked Japan. Uh, he played all these sort of military games trying to expand the Soviet Union. And in so doing, in, in his invading Romania and kind of pushing there, jeopardized Germany's oil supply. And uh, Hitler, the other crazy socialist dictator in Europe, uh, decided he would invade the Soviet Union. And so there, the surprise attack, of course, nearly defeated the Soviet Union, right? So the, there were German troops now all of a sudden, just in the blink of an eye in Moscow, right? Now, these German troops had to come from halfway through Poland at the time what is basically now Poland's eastern border, right? So if you look at a map of Russia and you think, you know, German troops had to come from there, you know, from the modern, not quite the modern borders of Romania, but basically from that point to invade Russia. And in invading Russia, it took them, you know, months to get to the outskirts of Moscow. It was to, it, it expected Russia to be a pushover. Turns out the Red Army was a little tougher than they thought, and Russian tanks were a little bit tougher than the Germans thought. And then the winter came on before they, uh, they, they expected to win before winter set in. And of course, the Germans weren't prepared for the winter, and the Russian winters are infamous. So the Russians felt, feel very insecure about invasion, right? Moscow, Moskva, the capital of Russia, is less than 500 kilometers from the Ukrainian border. So to Russia, the possibility of Ukraine joining, say, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, right, becoming a U.S. ally, joining the European Union, being part of political and military alliances with Russia's enemies, historical enemies, or other powers in general, it's like a knife at their throat. Right? And I'm not saying this to justify Vladimir Putin. I'm not saying this to justify Russia. I, I want you as my listeners to understand the cultural context. I spent a lot of time explaining the Iranian mindset, explaining the Arab mindset. Well, here's the Russian mindset. Uh, they feel the knife's edge cutting at their throat from Ukraine. I wrote an article back in 2012 called To Encircle the Russian Bear. And in it, you know, I've, I've long been an opponent of the existence of NATO. So uh, even even from, since I was a teenager in the late 90s, I remember writing a letter to my congressman saying, why does NATO still exist? Uh, why is it expanding? When are we going to dissolve it? Right? The Cold War is over. NATO was a Cold War instrument, right? We needed it for the Cold War. That was the argument. Cold War is over. We don't need it anymore, right? When is it going away? Obviously, it has not. But um, NATO expansion agitated 
against the Russians. The Russians began to feel insecure again. And that's why uh, Boris Yeltsin was looking for a strong leader to succeed him. And basically his big, you know, flip the bird to the West was Vladimir Putin, who succeeded him as president in 2000. And Putin has been a strong nationalist leader who has driven a nationalistic Russian patriotic movement, sort of a return to Orthodox Christianity a little bit, to the extent that it supports his agenda. So like Russian, you know, traditional Russian values to the degree that they support Putin, right? If, if let's just say if, um, if being Orthodox Christian suddenly kind of leaned against Vladimir Putin, let's just say that it, its resurgence might find itself quelled a little bit. It, it, that people might cool to the to it a little bit. Uh, in any case, uh, he's been pushing this agenda to strengthen Russia. And NATO has been playing games. They admitted uh, Ukraine to the organization, uh, sort of pre-NATO members. Uh, the European Union has talked of admitting uh, Ukraine. As long as the European Union is purely political, that's sort of six of one, half a dozen of the other, except that that means Ukraine trading more with the West as opposed to with Russia, right? Russia kind of sees Ukraine as its satellite. Uh, and this is, I mean, again, knife at the throat, okay, from the Russian perspective, like they can feel the blade against their skin, right? It's shaving hair off of their, you know, off of their throat uh, in, their, in their mindset. Well, in 2014, uh, President Yushchenko, who was the uh, Russian-backed president of Ukraine, uh, and his regime were kind of leading an effort. I, I want to say it was unpopular, but, you know, he was very pro-Putin. And uh, he was uh, seen as Putin's puppet in Kiev. Well, uh, there was a, what they call the Orange Revolution or what have you. They, they threw him out of office. You know, there were a lot of protests, and he fled the country. And uh, that led to the rise, uh, ultimately, uh, of Alexander Tuchinov, who is president of uh, Ukraine for a while, and then uh, Poroshenko, Petro Poroshenko, who was president until 2019. Basically, anti-Russian presidents, pro-EU, pro-Western, for the most part. Well, Putin... Uh, was going to respond right away. As soon as Yushchenko left the country, I remember posting on Facebook, uh, on my personal uh, Facebook page, that we need to prepare for a Russian invasion of Ukraine, that we need to start becoming accustomed to terms like Russian-occupied Ukraine or Russian-occupied Eastern Ukraine or things like that, because uh, Putin was not going to allow this to stand. And uh, I want to say within 24 hours of my post, there was a, a news story about uh, uniformed men with no uh, national insignia on their shoulders at the airport in Crimea, that uh, there were military officers, the, the army officers, basically soldiers, had invaded the airport in Ukraine, taken it over, but they weren't wearing any country badges. Right? They, no one could tell exactly what country they were coming from, but they were speaking Russian. A surprise. So I called it. And Russia took the the Crimea. Uh, the Crimea since then uh, voted in referendum to be with Russia. Uh, a lot of the Turkic Crimeans don't feel uh, 
uh, a closeness with Ukraine, and they are actually rather happy to be out of Ukraine. Uh, but should they be part of Russia, that's not necessarily clear there either. So back to the point I made about the tripolar Ukraine. So we have Russian Ukrainians who are pro-Putin, generally speaking, pro-Russian, and are not comfortable with Ukrainian nationalism. We have westernized, I want to say left-leaning Ukrainians, let's call it the, the peace-love liberals. Um, some of these people I could, I could you know, relate to, you know, you, you, they're kind of like us, I want to say, most Americans are, uh, freedom, peace, love, and all that good stuff. And they want a Ukraine that is independent of Russia, that could potentially become an EU member, uh, and not necessarily into the whole NATO alliance or anything like that, but, but being closer with Europe, right? And then we have Ukrainian nationalists. Uh, and I've talked a little bit about, I, I said, well, can we give Poland a break <laughs> in the past episode? Um, I can only give Ukraine so much of a break in this case, because uh, Ukrainian nationalists are very anti-Semitic. Uh, they are totalitarian in a lot of cases. Uh, I mean, they, they have moderates, but for the most part, we're talking about a core of people who are just hardcore Ukrainian. And these nationalists are no one's friends, right? So they, they justify, if you will. The Russians use these, these kooks to justify uh, their intervention. Well, Putin did not invade Ukraine directly. Instead, he destabilized it. So during Poroshenko's presidency uh, in Ukraine, Putin uh, basically funded and, and supported Ukrainian rebels. I'm saying, if you could see, I get quotation marks in, my, in, my, in the air here as I'm... Uh, talking to you, Ukrainian, uh, Russian rebels in uh, inside the Ukraine, right? Was these were um, you know Russian soldiers, a lot of them who just took off their uniforms and walked into Ukraine, and now they are Ukrainian rebels, Russian-backed Ukrainian rebels. They're not Russian soldiers, definitely not. They there would not be a Russian soldier found among them. Uh, they are in civilian clothes or, you know, otherwise in, in paramilitary uh, uniforms as Ukrainian rebels. Uh, definitely not Russian army soldiers. Uh, definitely not answering to Putin, right? Sure, we, we believe that. In any case, they've destabilized the country and, and they've kept a, a civil war going there for quite some time. So Putin's strategy up to this point has been, if I can't have it, no one can, right? If, if Ukraine is not mine it will not be yours either. And so he's just kept it in this chaotic, destabilized position. But it creates the perfect excuse, because it's chaotic, that Putin could, at any time that he likes, send his forces into Ukraine to restore order. Now, it's not an invasion. We're just restoring order. And in order to maintain that order, we'll have to leave large numbers of Russian military forces in Ukraine, right? So uh, this is the situation that we're dealing with now. Uh, as long as Donald Trump was president, the situation was quiet, right? Vladimir Putin is no fool. He's no idiot. He knows that if he were to rattle Donald Trump's cage, so to speak, uh, that uh, Donald Trump would respond accordingly and it would not be good for Russia, right? But now they're in a very unique position, a weak U.S. administration, uh, you know, absolutely incapable of doing anything uh, against Russia, not going to stand up to Russia. Um, a lot of us were wondering what were those payments of millions of dollars to Hunter Biden for? What did Russia expect to get in return? And now we're finding out, right? 
Uh, the U.S. has uh, the U.S. government, the Biden administration, has called on American citizens to leave Ukraine, and they have said there will be no evacuations. So in, in Afghanistan, we had the tra- the travesty of tens of thousands of people dying because uh, U.S. forces just walked away. You know, we had 11 Marines die at the last minute, but we just walked away. Uh, there were barely any uh, evacuations, barely any attempt to get our people out, U.S. citizens, American allies, and a lot of people died. Uh, in this case, there will be none. If Russia invades Ukraine, it's theirs. Uh, Germany, uh, Angela Merkel, as I mentioned before, has been slowly kind of warming to Putin, and they made a new gas deal, and so Germany is keen to sit this one out, uh, not interested in getting involved here. Uh, a German admiral was recently uh, caught praising Vladimir Putin and saying that Germany would not intervene. Uh, he's been forced to resign his commission since then, uh, of course, but his sentiments ring true, right? Germany's just going to sit back and do nothing uh, in this particular instance. Uh, Nobody wants a war, uh, but should Vladimir Putin be allowed to consume Ukraine? I mean, I'm not, I, I don't believe Ukraine should be in NATO or in the EU or involved in talks with either. Uh, but at the same time, uh, Ukraine should not belong to Russia either. Uh, it was in my uh, article about encircling the Russian bear, I argued that we should dissolve NATO, that the U.S. should build direct relationships, uh, defensive relationships with Poland, Hungary, Slovakia, and Romania, and basically build a kind of a bulwark, right? A, a group of nations that are our military allies that would have a larger amount of American military equipment, American military presence in small numbers, maybe, possibly, but just direct relationship there. Obviously, there are U.S. forces in Italy and Germany, countries that we took in the Second World War. Uh, it would not be a good idea to move those troops uh, eastward, We do not need them any closer to Russia. We don't want to antagonize Russia. So my point was, we kind of build a barrier around Russia. They're contained and we leave them alone. And in that regard, uh, Ukraine should be neutral. It should be neither neither side's country. Russia should feel comfortable that, that they are safe with Ukrainian neutrality. They should have a good trading relationship with Ukraine. Europe should also have a good trading relationship with Ukraine. Uh, that was not the policy the United States pursued. And as a result, uh, we're we're quite possibly going to see an invasion of Ukraine by Russia. At the very least, there's some very serious saber rattling. Uh, And, you know, there are leaders out there who rattle their saber every now and then. Uh, Kim Jong-un, as Donald Trump called famously Rocket Man, right? Uh, There are are people who every now and then kind of, you know, I'm going to make some trouble. You know, you should listen to me. I'm scary. And, you know, we we just kind of sit back and laugh like, yeah, sure, you know. You're, you're real scary, little little guy. Uh, Vladimir Putin is not that. Vladimir Putin is the real deal. That is the real Russian bear here. And uh, he, in order to maintain power, must project an air of strength and masculinity and toughness. Ergo, the pictures of him riding horseback, topless, you know, bare-chested and being tough and, and manly and Russian, right? Uh, he does that for a reason. And if he allows Ukraine to slip out of Russia's sphere, that will indicate weakness. And those protests that drove Yushchenko out of Kiev will make their way to Moscow. And uh, pretty soon it'll be Vladimir Putin getting on a plane to flee Moscow and fly somewhere rather than 
you know, Yushchenko. So uh, Putin is heading all of that off and he's going to uh, take back Ukraine right now. So this is scary times. Uh, you know, it's, you look at history and the Japanese invasion of Manchuria in 1929 and again in 1931 were kind of looked on as isolated incidents at the time. In 29, it happened. The U.S. told them to get out. Britain, everyone else told them to get out. Uh, in 1931, they did it again. This time, the world kind of had other problems, economic problems, global depression, stuff like that. So uh, Japan was able to get away with taking Manchuria. Uh, the Marco Polo Bridge incident that in Beijing that led to the uh, Sino-Japanese War is really, th those are really the first shots of World War II in the essence that to the degree that the Pacific War was related to World War II. Right. So you, a lot of Europeans, you know, Tony Jute and other great intellectuals have pointed out that basically from the rise of, after the rise of Germany, from the point at the at which the Franco-Prussian War ends in 1871, we have this sort of cold balance of powers issue going on in Europe that had to be resolved as a conflict. And from 1914 to 1945, you really have one long period of conflict economic upheaval, social upheaval. It's really one big conflict to decide who's going to run Europe. And after that, you know, the U.S. rebuilt Western Germany and then allowed Germany to reunite. So basically, Germany ends up winning that. The European Union is now the German Empire uh, to a large extent. And that is, uh, you know, the balance of power in Europe. Uh, the Pacific War is an unrelated conflict that the U.S. ended up in because Stalin manipulated the Japanese into attacking the U.S., uh, not so commonly known, but he wanted to secure his border there so that he could focus on fighting the Germans on the other side of his country, and he was successful at that. Um, so when people look at this in history, you look at, you know, the invasions of Manchuria, the, the Marco Polo Bridge incident, these little conflicts that led to the conflict we, as Americans, think of as World War II, because Americans think of the two world wars separately, because World War I ended, our troops came home, and we went, you know, back to doing our own thing, nothing to do with Europe, and then come 1941, you know, Pearl Harbor is bombed, and we all wake, oh, there's problems in Europe, we need to go send troops over there and deal with it again. You see, to Americans, we can imagine that they are two separate conflicts, because for us, the events in Europe only attracted our attention for those two periods, 1914 to 1918, and then 41 to 45, right? And after that, it attracted our attention in the sense of the Cold War, right? And through that lens. In any case, uh, when you look at these incidents, they look like little isolated incidents, but you can see them as stepping stones, the invasion of Manchuria, the Marco Polo Bridge incident, the Sino-Japanese War. These are things that happened that led to a global conflict. And if you're looking at this perspicaciously, what's going on in Ukraine right now, it really has the eerie feel of a Marco Polo Bridge incident. Is this going to be looked at by later historians as, you know, are they going to be talking about this the way I've just described the stepping stones to World War II? Are they going to say, you know, and, and this incident in Ukraine in, in 2022 was the beginning of the conflict that led to the Third World War, right? Is that is that how this is going to be remembered? Who knows? 
but it comes back to proving the point that I've said several times. Uh, weakness begets war. Strength reinforces peace, right? And uh, that's, that's the situation we're in now. Uh, since the irregular and uh, legally questionable election of 2020, tens of thousands of people have died around the world, uh, in addition to the, the people who have uh, died in lockdowns here in the U.S., uh, we've had deaths in Afghanistan and now in, in Ukraine because the United States is weak, because we have internal conflicts, because we have problems. You know, look through history, you know, the Romans are, are keeping, you know, we have Pax Romana and everything's good throughout the empire. And then the Romans start fighting each other and everything goes to pot, right? All, the, all of a sudden there's rebellions in Germany and Judea and everybody's rising up against the Romans. And then the Romans figure out their problems. They get back on the same page. Okay, we're going to have Vespasian as emperor. And now all of a sudden, we're going to go put down the Germans and go put down the, the Jews. And now we'll reestablish order in the empire. Right now, America's in the midst of dealing with our own problems right here in our own country. And as a result, uh, the world is kind of going to hell in a handbasket, isn't it? And that, uh, that's the sad truth. I wish I had better news to tell you. Uh, let's hope and pray that there is no conflict in Ukraine, that uh, Vladimir Putin listens to the better angels of his nature, to quote Abraham Lincoln, and uh, peace prevails. Uh, but uh, I would rather not have to pray for Vladimir Putin to be a good man, for a dictator and a, a, uh, a brute. Uh, I, I would rather not have to pray that he has a, a moment of conscience uh, I would rather rely on the strength of our position that uh, the bad guys are cowed and would not dare uh, to attack anyone. And so I'll close with a quick story. I happened to go to the Reagan Library in California uh, one day back in uh, <clears throat> the late 2000s. And I didn't realize this, but uh, it happened that that particular day, I had no idea, uh, the president of Poland had come to the Reagan Library to bestow honorary citizenship on Ronald Reagan. The reason being that uh, Poland had already given Reagan their highest award that they can give to any non-Polish citizen for uh, helping Poland because he, he stood up for the Poles during the Cold War. He singled out and called solidarity by name and said, you know, called on the Soviets to let the Polish people be free. You know, uh, so... They, they really celebrate Ronald Reagan over there. He's a big hero in Poland. Uh, and uh, so the Polish president was bestowing posthumously citizenship, Polish citizenship, on Ronald Reagan so that he could receive their highest order, uh, the highest award that the Polish government can hand out. Uh, and so Nancy Reagan was there, and, and all, of the, all of the cabinet mem members were, were there, Ed Meese and... Uh, uh, and uh, all, all of them, they, they were all, it was, it was a great moment uh, in history, and I'm grateful to have been a part of it. Listening to the president, uh, the Polish president's speech, though, he made a point that really stuck with me that I, I think I'm going to share with you now. And that is, in 1980, the Soviets planned an invasion of Poland to put down solidarity, to reassert order on behalf of the Polish Communist Party, which had proven unable to get a handle on the situation. They were, you know, disappearing people and trying to capture people and taking them to basements and shooting them. Uh, but this wasn't solving their problem. Solidarity was growing. It was gaining power. 
it was gaining force, and in time it could push the communists out of power, and it would, ultimately. So the Soviets were going to invade. The, the Russian army was going to enter Ukraine, uh, enter Poland, excuse me. They, they were going to invade and put down solidarity and reassert Russian control, just as they had done in Hungary and Czechoslovakia before, right? Uh, also, the Iranians had taken hostages in, in our embassy, right? In November 1980, Ronald Reagan was elected president. And we know that we have this three-month, this sort of weird three-month period from November when the election takes place to January 20th when the president takes office. And in that time, in those two months, two and a half months there, the Soviet Union called off their invasion of Poland and the Iranians agreed to release the hostages as soon as Ronald Reagan took office. And this happened during that time because... Both parties knew that Ronald Reagan was strong, that he was tough, that unlike Jimmy Carter, he would make a tough and competent response to their actions, that tough times were coming. That strength saved how many lives? All of the hostages that the Iranians gave up and how many Poles? We, we will never know. I mean, Baruch Hashem, thank God, we will never know how many Poles might have been killed by the Russians invading Poland to put down solidarity in 1981. Right, Because the invasion never happened. Because Ronald Reagan was elected president. Before he'd even taken the oath of office. Before he put his hand on the Bible and said, I solemnly swear. The Russians had called off the invasion. Strength begets peace. Weakness begets war. <laughs>